Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, and today we are looking at Tainted Grail from Awakened Realms. Woohoo! Hotness, where you're exploring and fighting and doing diplomacy. So, all the things. All the things. <laughs> and then we're going to have a discussion on kind of exploration elements in games overall. But before we do that, Mike, let's thank some of our loyal Patreons. So this week, we'd like to thank C. Scott Kippen, who's a co-op lover, Jesse Pitsley, who's a co-op MVP, and Charles Fox, who's a co-op lover. Thank you to those three and all our Patreon supporters for helping to keep the podcast going, the YouTube channel running, uh, helping us go to PAX Unplugged uh, soon in a few weeks here, and just uh, covering co-op and solo games the best we can. And if you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash one stop. Or uh, if you don't want to give monetary support, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Hey, and Mike, I just got an email today from a co-op MVP, and he wants to do a shout out. Is this uh, Colin? It is Colin. He says, (laughs) I'm back. See, I think it's a lie. I don't think he emailed you at all. You're right. It is a lie. But Colin is back. So if you haven't visited the One Stop Co-op Shop YouTube channel lately, go check him out. He's been back for a couple months now and producing some great content as always. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Colin will uh, take a few weeks off because work is always kind of cyclical for him. And then he'll do a slew of videos. So he has a bunch waiting in the wings that might be up by the time we actually do this. And ooh, very exciting. I think this might be up by the time you're listening to this. Uh, thank you to our Patreon members for this. Uh, when we reach our $150 level, we said that we would do a dual playthrough, me and Colin, of Lord of the Rings, which is Colin's number one game and my not number one game. <laughs> and we did it. And it was exciting. And I actually had a great time. I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, check it out on the YouTube channel. I'm guessing at least episode one will be up by now because I know while we're recording this, Colin is editing. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. If you want to see the first time me and Khan have ever played together in a game, of course, this was virtually over the webs, then uh, go check it out. That's awesome. Hey, Mike, guess what? What? I'm actually prepared for some theme on this one. Oh, man. Well, talk. Yeah, well, this one has a pretty clear theme. So why don't you tell us some theme of Tainted Grail? This island was never meant for humans. Looming on the border between the reality and the ancient power known as the Weirdness, it was populated by a mysterious legendary race. Humans came here anyway, with their wooden ships, their ambitious king, and his fellowship of knights. Running from the plague ravaged their distant homeland, they took the islands piece by piece, raising meneers of foreboding shape and mysterious purpose. The former masters of the island faded into legend. Four hundred years later, not even their name remains. The people of Avalon call them the Four Dwellers. Times are harsh. The Red Death is back. The Meneers are dying. And without their power, the land itself crumbles back into the weirdness. That's why your hometown has gathered five of its strongest, wisest heroes and sent them to find help in the distant Camelot. As these champions set out to brave the dangers of the wild land, you watch from afar. You are not one of them. 
All right. So that's a little bit of backstory. I actually thought the introduction for this was really cool, and that's why I decided to read it. So I did not make up that story myself. That comes right out of the basic rule book. Yeah, so thanks, though. That was a rousing reading there, Peter. Well, you know, I do what I can. But bottom line is you have these meneers. These are giant statues on your island that are burning out. And you have to kind of figure out why and try to save them. They're the only thing holding the weirdness, which is this unknown evil on the outskirts at bay. And so the only thing that will hold it at bay are these meneers. And some of them have started burning out. And so your goal is to start lighting them up along the way as you go and kind of try to solve this mystery and push back the weirdness. So the basic idea of this is it is an exploration game where you are trying to kind of discover things on this continent, almost a seventh continent, if you would. (laughs) And uh, you're trying to solve the mystery and rescue the world and make kind of like quest-based and side quest-based decisions. But in terms of the actual gameplay, uh, each of the characters has a set amount of energy each turn, kind of like their stamina they can use. And you have a series of actions you can use. You can move around, you can explore locations, which kind of takes you into a choose-your-own-adventure-ish sort of a mechanic to determine what happens at that location. You can use abilities on your characters and abilities on locations to get resources, uh, food being one of the main ones because you need to eat food every day. And uh, sometimes you'll get into combat or diplomacy encounters, and each character has a unique deck of those cards. Well, not fully unique. Some cards are shared. And also a unique upgrade deck that you can spend experience to get. And the, the combat and diplomacy, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. But the basic idea is you're playing at least one card a turn. And if you're playing co-op, because this plays up to four, then you can kind of switch those cards off between you. But you're playing at least one card a turn. And uh, the cards have little uh, icons on kind of their right and their left side. And uh, if you link those up, you'll either do damage to the enemy or trigger other effects. And then after you uh, play one or more cards each round, then uh, the enemy will do stuff back to you. So that's kind of a vague thing, but yeah, that's the basic idea. You have a morning where the Meneers count down and get closer to going away, where you have little events you resolve. You all move through your energy, and then you have the night phase where you can uh, rest and heal, and also you can have uh, dreams and nightmares that might give you clues as to how to like kind of move forward. But those are the basics. I'm sure we'll get into more kind of detailed things of the system later, but there you go. All right, Mike. Well, I always end up starting. So why don't you start this time? Because I do think it is harder to go second. And uh, I'm going to I'm gonna take that burden off of you this week. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I, I've definitely felt the stress of that. <laughs> but before we get into that, I want to welcome our new listeners and let you know how we count down our top five things. What we do is we start with the number five thing, which is the least important thing we think about the game. And number one is the most important thing. But they're all very important, obviously, because they are in our top five things. So without further ado, Mike, why don't you start with your number five thing you think about Tainted Grail? So my number five is a mix, and that's the co-op and the uh, downtime that can be inherent to that co-op. So first of all, on the positive side, and I really do like this, I think that the cooperative exploration and how you can kind of work together in this one is really clever. And compared to something like Discover, where I didn't feel like you really did much to help each other out, or uh, Seventh Continent, where I felt like sometimes the cooperative mechanics were kind of wonky and almost discouraged, like, cooperating with each other, 
Here I think it's a nice mix of encouraging you to stay together sometimes and split up sometimes. And like uh, events will change and encounters will change based on who you bring with you. So you like might want to be together for some things and not for others. And you can uh, split resources in a lot of really straightforward, simple ways. Like I can carry you when we walk if you're running out of energy. So all that feels like really natural, really easy, and does make the game nice for cooperation instead of... Uh, you know, something like, again, Seventh Continent, which I feel is is so long and in some ways kind of discourages cooperation that I would never play that with more than maybe two people and kind of prefer it with one. Here, I think you can definitely play with two easily. Um, I'd be fine playing with three. Four might be pushing it a little bit. And also another nice thing is that the chapters are pretty uh, quick and like short which is kind of a different point, but plays into this because I think this is a more feasible thing to play cooperatively because you have these nice stopping points with the chapters. Whereas, again, uh, some of these kind of games are just these sprawling things that don't really have clear stopping points unless you build them in yourself. But with all that being said, the negative potential here, and this is mainly for four-player, maybe for three, and it's really going to depend on your group, but that's the potential for downtime. And this is uh, mainly going to crop up in combat and exploration, but those are literally the two main mechanics of the game and kind of the two most interesting parts. So combat can be very quick, can be like 30 seconds, but it can also take 5, 10 minutes. There's a lot of kind of puzzling out of which cards you want to play. And if you are in the combat, that's going to be a little bit of downtime. But if you manage to have yourself not be in the combat, oh my gosh, you just might be waiting for a while. And, you know, again, this depends on the kind of player you have and the kind of group you have. If you like watching others resolve their stuff and you get into it, not a problem. But if you want to be actively involved, you're going to get pretty bored. And same thing with the uh, encounters. If you're all together experiencing the encounter, that's awesome. But if you're not, you know, you got one big spiral-bound book. You can't all read from that thing at the same time. So there's some things to consider, especially, again, for three- or four-player. When we played two-player, I thought it was very smooth. And uh, three-player was, you know, kind of okay. Although I do say we tried to stick together more than I think some people might, and that made it easier to get through. But yeah, so a little bit of a mix. I think the cooperation is pretty cool, but uh, this still is going to be a tough sell for some groups at three and especially four players. Yeah, you know, there were so many things about this game that I almost put this on my list, but I left it off because there just are so many things about the game. There are some nice things for co-op, though. As far as campaign games go, they actually let you drop players out of the game and add them in seamlessly. And you don't really even have to do anything to do it. You just bring in a character at level one and say, hey, they joined you along your quest. Or you drop them out and split their loot between the other people in the party. So it's pretty easy to scale the number of players. The other thing I think they did really well is actually the player scaling. So there are these four decks you're going to have challenges from, and they start typically with the level one challenges if you are a solo player, but if you are playing with two, three, or four players, you add in the level two challenges as well. And then solo is going to ramp that up and co-op's going to ramp that up and it changes. So it's not only always solo does this, it could be one or two players do this, three and four players do this. So it's really interesting how they scale the difficulty. But I do agree there's a lot of downtime, especially in combat and diplomacy. The story part didn't bother me so much because, you know, everybody's experiencing that story. It's not like that person's reading it quietly to themselves. They're reading it to the table. So it didn't bother me too much when people were exploring off on their own. 
But my number five is the time pressure of the game. And this is another mixed one for me. So there are several ways they do time pressure as well. Number one is food. So if you don't have a ready food source around you, you are rushing to get to new places to find food sources. In addition to that, they also have the Meneers running down, which every day you're ticking them down one, but there are also events that'll happen in certain locations that you have a limited amount of time to do as well. And you may just put dials directly on the board and tick those down. So there are several ways they do time pressure. And I think it's interesting how they do it, but it's not 100% gonna push groups forward. For example, you can keep lighting the same Meneer that's near you over and over. And so that time pressure goes away a little bit because you could just do a bunch of stuff in the little area you're at. And to be honest, there have been times in the game where I've had to do that because I've been so wounded. So if you get out of a combat and you're really hurt, I mean, unless you have some way to heal or there's a healing location near you, you're only getting back one life a turn. So sometimes you do just kind of have to sit around for a while, maybe hunt, get some food, do some things to kill some time because... You just can't continue to explore when you're that hurt because you're facing a sure end to the game. So I think the time pressure is good, but if you don't want it to be there, it doesn't really have to be. You can kind of go at your own pace. Yeah, I felt this too. Now, I definitely kind of felt narrative-wise the pressure to keep going, but I did see the potential to kind of game the system and just maybe infinitely level yourself (laughs) if you want to keep on bouncing around. Although I will say... Uh, you are forgetting the quests have a natural time pressure as well as the Meneers. So you can't really level up forever because eventually you'll get negative things happening with your quest because uh, how it works is you have chapter-based event cards, like this little deck of chapter cards that's always the same, but then you'll shuffle some random events on top of them to kind of delay. But at least in all the chapters I've played, every time you get down to like those last few chapter cards, like horrific stuff happens over and over again. They're like, you better finish this friggin' chapter up. So it's never really like a fully waste time kind of thing, but definitely you can get into places where you could slow down the tempo if you want to. You know, when I wrote that down and I just skipped over it, I don't know why, but yes, you are absolutely right. So that is the other place where time pressure comes in is those quest cards. Now, let me ask you, though, did you ever get to a situation where you were just bloodied and beat up where you just had to rest for a few turns and like find something to do? No, the the couple times it did happen, I did happen to have something that was consistent for healing nearby. Might have been the luck of the draw, though, in terms of when that happened. But I can totally see it happening. I mean, I I guess you might just have to kind of push forward, though, if your time is running out. Sure, sure. Yep, so that's number five. They do put time pressure on you in multiple ways, and I think it's interesting how they do it, but there is still time to catch your breath if you need to. So, Mike, what's your number four? So my number four is another mix, and that is... This one could be higher for some people, I'll say. That's the, uh, the replay value and the potential for repetition in the experience. So... This didn't bother me too much, clearly, but like Seventh Continent, you have a a very set structure to the island, and like the same locations are in the same places. And uh, in some ways, there is even less uh, variety here than in Seventh Continent, because Seventh Continent at least has these randomized, like little kind of like fog encounter things that will change as you explore the same parts of the island, even though you'll eventually see the same landmass. Whereas here, the only real, like, kind of consistently randomized thing are the random events, and a lot of them don't have very much effect. They're like, hey, it's cloudy today instead of sunny. Things that aren't varied that much. 
But that being said, this one, something it has over the seventh continent and a lot of games like this, is that within the locations, it feels like there's a ton of different ways to go. And I never feel like I have time to investigate everything. And I'll see glimpses of side quests that I haven't even found yet uh, as you just kind of like wander around the world. So I do think that even if you go through the same like parts of a quest, you're probably going to have new options to take, new things to see. So I found the replay to be pretty good. Like I, I played through one campaign about halfway, and then um, I did uh, campaigns with a few other people and like a second campaign with a new character. And yeah, you know, replaying the very first chapter, which is the the kind of most handholdy the game gets, wasn't like super exciting, but I didn't mind it. But uh, yeah, th- th- there is some repetition here. You are going to see some of the same stuff. You are going to read some of the same encounters. And for some people, that's going to be a big issue. For me, I found the gameplay and the variety fun enough, but, you know, I can see it bothering people a lot. Yeah, and I think the way they counter this is they have branching story path, so you can go down multiple paths as far as your quests go. So even if you play the game again, you wouldn't have to follow the same path. And even in Chapter 1, there's like three or four different ways you can solve Chapter 1 as well. So I do think there's enough variety in there. I think there's enough hours of gameplay in there. You know, even if you just get through it once, you're going to have gotten your money's worth in this one. And that kind of goes into my number four, which is the story itself. And I think the story is really fascinating. For me, a lot of these games, I get lost and I don't really follow the story. Here, there is a lot of story in the game. And one thing they throw in, and this kind of goes back to your point of replayability too, they almost have this achievement log that you do. And as you do things, you're checking off boxes, but you don't always really know what that means. And later on, it says, if you have this box checked, then do this. If not, do this. And so there's a hundred different paths you can go down with this story. But even with that, I tend not to get lost because they all kind of point in the same direction. And I like that. What I mean by that is they're all telling the same story. I think sometimes when you get off on these side quests, they get so far from the main story that you don't really know what the main story is anymore. With these side quests and the way this story works, they kind of point you in the right direction. And they always point you toward, hey, this is what's going on in the world. And every story may be a little bit different, but it revolves around that major bad thing that's happening to the world. So I like the way the story is done in this game because it keeps me focused and it keeps me on track. Some people are going to like a more open world where you can kind of do whatever you want. And I think there's some of that in here if you dig real deep down some of these rabbit holes. But I think for the most part, you're going to be at least pointed in the right direction and you're going to get a coherent story or at least what feels like a coherent story. Yeah, I agree with that uh, completely, and that goes into my number three, which is a pro, and that's the the world building for me. So I focus on kind of the setting and the theme immersion more than the narrative itself. But I I will confess, I'm a sucker for Arthurian legends and that kind of thing, so the fact that this is sort of an otherworldly tale of King Arthur and Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table already kind of got me hooked. But I think the idea of them being in sort of this alien world where they don't belong is cool. I love the idea of the weirdness kind of ever-present pushing in around you and you barely fighting it off and having to, like, relight these statues to even be able to survive. I think the uh, illustrations are beautiful. 
every location I go to feels like a thematic piece of a world. Like it has a purpose. There's mysteries there. You know, they have these beautiful illustrations, these really nicely written like descriptions of them. The choose your own adventure stories are fun. So yeah, I feel like this is a really fascinating setting, a well thought out world. I've been loving seeing it in the core game and I'm going to do everything I can because I'm not an original Kickstarter backer. This is a review copy we got of the game, but I'm going to do everything I can to track down these uh, expansions they have. I think one is like a prequel of what happened when they first got to these islands. And I'm just kind of fascinated by the setting they've created here. I think it's really one that I want to uh, dig into. And at least with the version they sent us, there's kind of this almanac that has just uh, little writings about all the major elements in the game and like the background of the different groups that you'll meet and all this stuff. And it's it's really cool. It's uh, it's great. It, it's something I don't always expect from these kind of games. We talk about this on the Slack, that board games don't necessarily create the true theme that you might want from like a great fantasy uh, novel series or something. But here I think we're getting uh, probably the closest I've seen. This is a, a fascinating narrative, like you said, and just a fascinating world to explore. And even when they do something for mechanics purposes, like, for example, the Meneers themselves, you're only allowed to be within, you know, the surrounding spaces of the, or cards, really, because it's one card in the middle. So you're going to have three rows of three with a Meneer in the middle, and you can only be that close to a Meneer. You might have two or three present on the board. You could tell that was done to help clear off the old cards, you know, so you don't have this sprawling map that needs like five tables to cover. But even with that mechanical reason for it being there, thematically, it makes perfect sense. And they blend it into the world perfectly. And, you know, if I wasn't a designer, I wouldn't have even noticed that probably. Like, it's one of those things that mechanically it works so well But theme-wise, they integrated it so well that it doesn't even bother me, where with some of these games, it would really stand out like a sore thumb. Like, oh man, this is just a mechanical thing. There's no gameplay reason for it. But here, there's there's both, and they do it really well, I think. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'll I'll touch on that a bit more later. All right, so my number three, and people know that I love this in games, it has simple actions. What I mean by that is to move one space costs you one energy. To explore a place, it costs you one energy. If you have other actions, they tell you either right there on your location how much energy you have to spend, or it tells you on your character card. Beside that, you're just reading narrative from a book, or you're flipping over enemy cards. Like, everything is very simple. I would say outside of combat and diplomacy, which is a little more complex. You know, I'll get into that later. It adds a little bit tactical depth. But most of what you were doing in this game is very simple to do and very simple to understand what you're doing as well. So for a game as I would call as as deep as it is, it really is pretty simple to get people involved in. And this is one thing I love about co-ops specifically and co-ops that are at this level is you can bring new people into this game as long as you have someone who's willing to run it and able to run it for the group, then The player actions themselves are not very difficult. And even like doing event cards every turn, they don't seem bothersome. They aren't overburdening the game. I think they have the right amount of story to the right amount of complexity. Yeah, I'll agree with this one entirely. I didn't make a specific item on my list, but it kind of goes back to what I said in the co-op. The fact that not only are these actions so simple and straightforward, but the way that co-op kind of lets you split the cost between each other and that kind of stuff is just really smooth, really greatly done. And one thing I didn't mention that it was going to be one of my points originally, but I took it out because there are just so many things to talk about with this one, is they even give you a tutorial. 
Now, the tutorial is a little weird because it's only for one player. So I guess it's going to be the person that owns the game and is trying to learn it themselves that would run through this tutorial. I guess you could run someone else through it. I certainly ran my son through it. But it is a nice way to learn the game, I think. They teach you all the basics. Now, I will say it's very handholdy. Like, they literally tell you, play this card, then play this card, and it walks you exactly through it. But by the end of it, I certainly knew how to play the game And I did like that aspect of it. Now, I don't know what you'd do if you had a group of four people and you were all sitting down. You can't really all do the tutorial. It's it's a one-player tutorial. Certainly, people watching would get the same benefit out of it. But I don't know. I just thought that was a neat touch. And again, something that makes it a more accessible game. Yeah, and for me, I'm assuming this is what they probably intended for the average person. I played it solo, made sure I understood the game fully. And then I was able to teach someone the full game and play just chapter one with them. So I think it's like maybe a solo player tutorial before you take it to your friends. Sure. All right, Mike, what's your number two? All right, so my number two is another pro, a big one. And I'm curious, I feel like this might be your number two or your number one, Peter, but I'm not sure how you feel about it. But for me, I loved it. And that is the the combat mechanics. And I said this in my YouTube review. I'll say it again here. I did not expect to like these because <laughs> when I read the rules, like this whole like little combining of these little tiny icons and having to like match up the cards in your hand to the cards already in play and only being able to play like one or a few more cards every turn. It all felt like, you know, I, I suspected that it would pull me out of the exploration and become like a burden. Like, man, can I just get back to the story? Why do I have to go through this, this silly card game? But playing it... Man, I could not have been more wrong. I found this tactically engaging. I found out the way you can upgrade your characters with their unique cards and kind of fine-tune your combat deck as you uh, progress through the campaign to be really fun and interesting. Uh, I found a cooperative combat to be great. And the the conversations you would have, like, hey, can, can you play this kind of card? Then I can really smash him this next turn. Uh, I think that was really cool. I love the AI. So the AI is entirely deterministic based on what you do. They'll have uh, basically how much damage you've done so far will determine what they do. They Some of them will get worse as you do more damage. Some of them will get better. So you can, it's all part of the kind of calculation. Like, oh man, if I do two damage, he'll smash me. But if I do three damage, he'll do this weaker effect. And then you have like these timed things and you can play cards that have really negative effects. But if you can play another card on top of them, you cancel that negative effect. The entire thing is just really, <laughs> it, it almost became, almost, because it's my number two, became my favorite part of the game. And again, like the fact that I just thought it would be a distraction and an annoyance, it really surprised me how much I enjoyed this. And I'll say uh, Diplomacy uses basically the same mechanics. I find Diplomacy less interesting than combat, but you also do it far less. And it didn't bother me. It still has basically the same kind of gameplay. But yeah, combat is really, really cool, at least for me. Yeah, no, I was going to mention that Diplomacy and combat were basically the same. And you do maybe have more stages to do. You do maybe have options throughout. But the card play is the same, and that is the key element to the combat itself. So, yeah, no, I agree with that point completely. So my number two is the characters themselves. And, you know, we talk about characters a lot in these games, and we say, oh, I think they did a good job balancing the characters. It's been a while since I played a game where each character felt very unique and distinctive as much as these characters do. Now, I'm not sure if that holds throughout the entire campaign, because I haven't gotten that far into the campaign yet. I've just gotten a few missions in. But... Each character not only has a unique benefit, they only 
not only have a unique detriment that they have to deal with, but they also have unique decks of combat cards. They have unique decks of diplomacy cards. They have unique statistics, which tells you which part of the combat card and diplomacy card you can use at the beginning of the game. They start with different resources and you can level them however you want to level them. So each side of the combat and diplomacy has a pair. So there's three different pairs. There's the top, middle, and bottom pair. And when you're leveling up, you're going to have cubes in these, and that tells you what part of the combat card you can use. This is actually very hard to explain, and the combat itself, without looking at it, is very hard. I don't do this often, but I'm going to say look at Mike's video of the playthrough to see how combat works, because it's very interesting. But bottom line, when you level up, you're going to have to pay different amounts of experience based on how good you are at that pair of actions. One on the diplomacy side, one on the combat side. And so... You can choose to level up however you want, though. You can really level up in a certain pair of skills. You can level up in other things. When you level up on one side, it's going to make the other side more expensive. Or you can level up the decks themselves. So you can always pay two experience to draw out of these other skill cards that you don't have, which, again, are unique to your character, and add them to your deck. And then you can trim those decks back down to 15 cards. So you're not even bloating your deck by adding new cards So just the amount of possibilities you can do for leveling up your character are really, really interesting. Now, the one thing I will say is I am not sure in the long run whether it will stay that way. Because they encourage you to level up pairs where you don't have things, and because it's always better to have kind of things in every one of those three statistics, because if you have things in each of those statistics, you are more likely to be able to play cards in all three statistics. And so it just opens up your possibilities. So I'm not sure if characters are going to end up looking the same in the end anyway. And I do think, as Mike said, the combat side's a little bit stronger than the diplomacy side, just as far as how much you use it in the game and how much you need it in the game. So I kind of feel like it's a little bit obvious that you want to level up the left side first. So I'm not sure in the long run if those characters will still feel as unique down the road, but certainly at the beginning of the game, I love how different they feel and I love how you can level up however you want to level it up. And I will say having gotten further than you, I do think they stay pretty distinctive. Now you can level toward the middle and there's nothing wrong with that. And then I guess they would feel more similar but uh, I don't think you mentioned this. If you level up a uh, attribute that's already level two, instead of going to level three, I mean, you do go to level three, but you uh, you get a permanent uh, skill card, basically, that gives you a unique benefit that's kind of themed with whichever attribute you raised. So they do give you cool incentives to uh, go to extremes instead of going toward the center. And along the same lines, you can fine-tune your combat deck or your diplomacy deck to specifically use the icons you did level up and ignore the icons you didn't. So I think if you want to, like, really go all-in for some specific build of your character, the game certainly allows that. And one other thing I'll add, um, which is pretty fun, is that uh, there are uh, narrative touches for each character. Like, if you go to certain locations, it'll be like, are you this character? And you'll meet someone uh, you recognize or something will happen that's very specific to you and your background. So, uh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed the characters a lot, too. That was kind of like my number six or seven, I would say. For me, it was obviously much higher, and I'm glad to hear that you can build certain ways. I guess it's just in my DNA to kind of build toward the middle, and especially since I'm playing it solo. I think it even makes more sense to to play more toward the middle in that situation. But 
certainly it's good to hear that you don't have to, which is great. All right, so my number one uh, is another pro. A lot of pros at the uh, end here. So I said uh, there was something better than combat, and for me, that is the exploration and the questing and kind of the choose-your-own-adventure aspect of the game. So I'm kind of combining two things here, uh, the actual discovery of the world around you combined with that uh, discovery of the choose-your-own-adventure element. But man, do I love how they've done this. I love the writing. I love how varied the encounters are. And again, I mentioned this, but you'll go to some location, like even in the first area, and they'll give you like five options that have nothing to do with anything you've discovered yet. They're like, hey, do you have this character? And you're like, I don't even know who that is. And they'll be like, hey, have you uh, resolved this crazy quest? And you're like, no, I don't know what that is. So um, the, the the tantalizing nature of the, 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 the promise of discovering new things, of coming back to a location like way later in the campaign and finding new nuances, or maybe not even this playthrough, but in a future playthrough, trying to track down all the little nooks and crannies of this side quest, I find really, really exciting. And then just the exploration itself, like uh, slowly tracking down this world and seeing what new locations are there and, and the terrifying things that can happen to you. I mean, oh my gosh, I, I had one event. I don't know if you ever experienced this, Peter, but it's just horrific and it has long reaching uh, implications for the game. Like not enough that you have to quit, but it's going to majorly affect your uh, interactions and things with many locations. And I think that kind of stuff is cool. And uh, the quests themselves, uh, like Peter said, can be very branching. You can make very different decisions. It, it really feels like a great open world video game, like a fallout or Skyrim in that way, but you've got this great cooperative play and you've got this awesome puzzle based combat. So I, I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting away from myself. I'm sort of going into final thoughts here. But yeah, the, the exploration is really cool. And, and just a final point, Peter mentioned this. I love that they limit it with the Meneers. And, uh, you know, you can only go in this like little three by three grid, generally speaking. I think that's a great way to not make it feel too sprawling, to keep you focused on your current quest. Uh, you know, not like, uh, as happened to Peter in Seventh Continent, like misread a map and just go you know, 50 miles in the wrong direction and be like, well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> Here, uh, the game, this uh, very simple mechanic always keeps that exploration focused. So yeah, awesome, awesome feeling of exploration in this game, which we'll go right into our design discussion in a little bit. Yeah, and I'll go through my number one pretty quickly because you already went through it. But my number one is the combat and diplomacy actions, how you do that combat. That's the one thing for me that Seventh Continent got boring at pretty quickly. You know, at first it was unique and, and I like doing it, but for this game, I've just loved, and I don't know what it is. Lately, I've just been into card combos and, and card play and and really like feeling clever for doing smart things in combat. And then, you know, missing something maybe at first and then catching it before I decide which card to place down. Just there's a lot of things to think about in this card combat. And it's so unique. And that's why I said I'm having a hard time describing how you do it. But it really is neat and I think for someone like me, who isn't always into these choose-your-own-adventure, these story-based games, there's enough there in the combat and diplomacy to keep me interested, to keep me wanting to play, to keep me wanting to level up my character and see what new cool things I'm going to get. It's kind of like Gloomhaven in that way, where the tactical combat was so good for me that sometimes even the story fell away. Now, it doesn't in this one. And again, I think going back to my number four point is it keeps it focused and it keeps you on your quest. Even like 
So you do these short little chapters, which are, I don't know, anywhere from a half an hour to an hour and a half. Each chapter has its own goal card. And sometimes it's not one goal. It gives you multiple options for goals. So you can branch the story that way. But at least it gives you a focus. Like, hey, if you do this, you're going to progress to the next chapter. And it keeps, it's almost like microtransactions. It keeps rewarding you. Hey, you completed this part of the chapter. Now it's a good time to save or you can keep going. And stuff like Journeys in Middle Earth did that to me where I finished one chapter and I immediately wanted to go into the next one. I've had the same feeling here with this one. So I'll start with my final thoughts since I'm getting into them a little bit is... I actually like this game way more than I thought I would. I played Discover and I played Seventh Continent, but I thought I wasn't going to like this type of game, this exploration type game. I'm not typically into huge narrative games where the story is most of the game. And don't get, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of that in this game. But because the story is so focused and stays on track, I've really been able to keep up with it and I've really enjoyed it. And the combat itself, even if the story wasn't up to the snuff, I think the combat is so good that that would carry the game for me as well. So I've really been enjoying this one, and I look forward to playing through the whole campaign. I don't say that very often for games like this. Yeah, I mean, I'll back you up there. I I also did not expect to like this for somewhat different reasons. I was a huge fan of Seventh Continent at first, and you know I should review that one at some point, but... Well, I still think it's a genius design in a lot of ways. I definitely got frustrated with it and sort of the uh, the way they leverage difficulty against the players and that kind of stuff. And what I felt was a lot of repetition in the experience. But uh, Tainted Grail, man, this is, I mean, total, for me at least, total Seventh Continent killer. It would be hard for me to play Seventh Continent after this one. And not just because I think the narrative is stronger, not just because I like that there are characters to interact with instead of just being kind of this barren, desolate world, but that combat mechanic is awesome. I love the choose-your-own-adventure, like, depth you get into with the encounters. And yeah, I mean, my my best comparison for this is a Fallout or a Skyrim-style computer or video game, but one that you can play cooperatively, one that you can play in small chunks one that has awesome puzzle-based combat. And, you know, some people might look at this kind of game and be like, why would I ever need this? Because they have computer games to do this better. But I don't think they do it better. I feel like I'm getting a very different, really awesome experience with this. Uh, this game is, I think, amazing. If you're like me at all, you know, I, this this game is kind of... It surprised me it was in my wheelhouse, but it turned out to be entirely in my wheelhouse. So I can't say that everyone will like it. I think the repetition could annoy some people. I think if you don't want to read a lot, that's definitely going to be a problem here. And some people might not like the combat. Maybe it won't gel for them and they won't enjoy the puzzle. But yeah, for me, this is easily going to be in my top three of the year. And it's fighting for number one. I got to look at my list as we get into uh, December and we do our end of the year uh, episode. But uh, Tainted Grail is going to be up there without a doubt and might take the number one spot. Uh, it's it's amazing. And if you think you'll enjoy any of the stuff we're talking about, I highly, highly recommend you find a way to play this. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I will say as well, for me, the long form nature of Seventh Continent, the fact that you're playing a one single mission for six to 12 hours without breaking it up at all. And certainly you don't don't say six to 12. I mean, for some people that's 30 hours. (laughs) Well, sure. And certainly you can break it up yourself if you want to, but here it naturally does it. It gives you natural stopping points, but it also gives you enough that you want to keep going as well. If you want to play two or three sessions in a row, you certainly can. And that was the one thing with seventh continent, just the 
epic scale and the epic nature of it without that story element for me was the hard part. And yes, you get whatever, seven curses you're trying to beat. And here, maybe it's only one big curse. But I don't mind that because I have all these micro quests. And if I do micro quest A this time and next time I might go through and do number, you know, letter B and see how that one treats me. So I don't know. This for me, people... who have heard me uh, on Every Night is Game Night talk about Seventh Continent know that I did not like that game at all. And it's amazing to me that for a game that is so close as far as what they were trying to do, how much better this one turned out. Yeah, I'm really glad you enjoyed it because I did not know what your take would be. I mean, I I said I wanted to play it with you and show it to you because I was so enthralled with it. But yeah, knowing how you felt about these kind of games in the past, I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Peter might hate this. When you know, for the first couple of times you tried to bring it over, I'm like, no, let's play something else. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So the fact that I enjoyed it as much as I did is a surprise to me as well. But I certainly want to play it more. So when we get to the end of your episode, I'll really have even more solidified thoughts on it. Yeah, we can keep it for a little bit longer, but then I do need it back, man. I got to play some more. (laughs) I got to finish my quest. By the way, did I mention I'm on vacation the rest of the year, so I'm not going to be able to see you? Oh, that's really sad. I I guess you can't play uh, the three new games that are coming this week. Dang it. All right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're going to get into our design discussion. We'll try to keep it short because that was a longer review than normal. We had to gush a bit. But this is on uh, how exploration is handled in games. And yes, we're going to be looking a lot at games like Seventh Continent and uh, Tainted Grail that kind of handle it in this one way. But we can also look at sort of uh, dungeon crawlers and the way they sort of reveal new events or new rooms and that kind of stuff. So, Peter, what do you want to get into first with the idea of like exploration and discovering new things in a game? Well, I kind of want to talk about the way Tainted Grail does it because I haven't seen anyone do it quite this way. The way they do it is twofold. The first fold is they have the like kind of story quest cards where you're flipping over quest cards. You have some random events that get thrown in there as well. So every turn you're getting a new random event that happens. And every once in a while, you'll also have an event that is story based that kind of pushes the story forward. But in addition to that, you have these storybooks. I've seen it kind of go one way or the other where you're reading out of a storybook a lot or you're reading you're having these narrative cards that push the story. But it's interesting how they use the two of them in combination. And for me, typically, this would seem fiddly, but it just isn't here. It's really straightforward. At the beginning of a turn, you flip over a card. One card at a time, face up on the table, tells you what your quest is and what your your goal is and what you're striving toward. And then as you explore locations, all that text is in the book. And maybe it'll tell you to grab some cards or do something else. But it's really interesting how they combined both a timer with that event card deck, you know, that is the timer for the game as well. They say, put five cards on top. Well, that means you have five turns until the next major event comes out. I just think it's really clever how they combine the two different types of narrative, one through the exploration through the storybook, and then one that keeps the the turn going and the game going and the overall quest going with these timer cards. I thought that was a really clever way of doing it. Yeah, I agree with you there. And just kind of get to the the broad level kind of discussion here. I was trying to think of how to kind of qualify this. And I think there are sort of three main like tensions or three main ways you can do exploration. I think uh, you're fighting between how immersive it is. And that could be like narrative, uh, for example, that you might read. How interesting it is gameplay wise. Like, is it all the same stuff or you just get like a plus one bonus or do very different things happen? 
And then finally, how replayable it is. And I think a lot of times replayability will go against the other two. Well, maybe not against the gameplay one, but definitely against the narrative. Like, you can't have a strong, consistent narrative or a coherent story, but also, you know, allow this location to be on this side of the world this time and that side of the world the next time. Like uh, Seventh Continent and Tainted Grail, they have set maps with set things that you can go toward and expect to see them each time. And if they took that away, then you'd lose kind of the coherence. I can picture this horrific Frankenstein-style map where they just kind of threw landmasses together and nothing really looks right. Sure, and I think the way they solved it and Discover did this as well is each time you go there, you might experience different things based on where you are in the game. And even with Tainted Grail, sometimes they'll replace some of the cards with other cards and upgrade the cards. So they say, if you've already experienced this event, switch it to this card. Or if this happens, switch the card out with this card. So the card itself changes, but does keep that consistent map that you're talking about. So the card is always meant to be there. So maybe now it's 101 and it tells you to put card 126 there instead when this event happens or if you've gone through this thing. Uh, Seventh Continent did very similar things. It's like, well, until you unlock this, you know, if you have this story element, then this means this. Otherwise, it just looks like a glowing orb and you don't know what it is. So I think these games have figured it out like how to make even a consistent map feel different each time you go through it because you need to level up kind of before you get the full story there. And I think a lot of it comes down to how engaging your gameplay is. So I'll give you an example of the sort of progression here with uh, Go Back to Discover Lands Unknown from Fantasy Flight. The locations are randomized, but you'll have like a set like the the four tier locations are always going to be on the outside and the you know the one tier going to always be in the middle. But uh, within those locations, you'll have the exact same landmarks every time, and those landmarks will have the exact same like little encounters possible every time. So for me, uh, I found that game's core mechanics to be pretty fun and simple and quick. I would compare them favorably to Tainted Grail, which is also kind of quick in how you move and explore. And my first several times playing, I was discovering the things and having the encounters and stuff. But after I played it through two or three times, my future plays of that same scenario... We're more about optimization, like, oh, where's the tree this time? Where can I get the flamethrower this time? And I found that to still be fun. I would connect this to dungeon crawlers as well, and I think some do it better than others. I've said it several times that while I love Gloomhaven, probably my biggest con with it is that I just hate, like, I despise replaying missions. And I think that's because... The discovery aspect is not that interesting there. Uh, Some missions will have something interesting happen when you open a door, but a lot of times it's just, hey, here's some more monsters. And the fact that it's always the exact same monsters and they tend to do pretty similar stuff each time you fight them makes it feel to me like, you know, even though I love the mechanics of Gloomhaven, it's not enough to kind of overcome the lack of discovery and exploration, I feel, in that nothing that exciting tends to happen behind most of the doors that I uncover. So... Yeah, I think even though I think Gloomhaven is a much better game than Discover, I do think uh, Discover, in terms of its like little genre, did a nice job of giving me that sense of exploration. And even once I had explored, giving me the fun of kind of combining my knowledge with the game mechanics to give me a cool experience. Yeah, and I think the one thing both Discovery games need and Dungeon Crawl games need, and I mean, Gloomhaven might prove me a little wrong here, is great narrative. Because without that great narrative, there's nothing pushing you to want to go to that next location and explore that next location. 
And so I do think storytelling is a big part of it. So if you're a designer trying to design one of these, either you need to get a writer on board or you need to be a good writer yourself. Because I do think without that narrative part, without that story pushing you forward, that these games will just fall flat. I don't know that I agree entirely. Because I think, like, to take Seventh Continent for an example, I, I, I did enjoy that a lot. And I think a big difference between your experience and my experience with it was not the narrative, because I think Seventh Continent has barely any narrative. It's all kind of emergent gameplay, which I enjoy. But I think the big thing there is the clarity of the goal, which is similar, but I think also very different. So I think uh, if, if you have exploration, it is still good, kind of like Tainted Grail did in a more effective way, to have uh, very strict expectations of how you advance your goal. So it's not just wandering for wandering's sake. And don't get me wrong, I love wandering for wandering's sake in some settings. Like, I don't mind in a, in a game like Skyrim just walking off into the snow and seeing what I find, and I can, like, ignore my primary quest. But I do feel like uh, board games, especially in a cooperative setting, <laughs> I don't have the time to just walk for 20 hours uh, without a care in the world. I need to, like, have things happening. So I don't know if it's the narrative element. I don't care if a game like this, a dungeon crawler, or a uh, kind of discovery exploration game, I don't care if they have no narrative whatsoever, as long as I have clear goals that make the exploration not just kind of an exercise unto itself. Yeah, you know, I think you're right in that. I think it isn't the narrative itself. It's the narrative pointing me in a direction. And giving me a story I can follow, whether it's a story that I'm making up in my own mind or a story that they're trying to tell me. And I think that's part of the thing with Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and 2. I know we're talking about something completely different, but there was definitely more exploring in Pandemic Legacy Season 2 to open up new parts of the world and things like that. But in that exploring, sometimes their goals became more muddled because they didn't know what you had explored and what you hadn't yet. And so... I think my goals and my focus weren't as clear as they were in something like Pandemic Legacy Season 1, where it's like, oh yeah, we got to do these three things now. So I might have known the three things I had to do in Season 2, but I didn't know how to do them yet. Maybe I hadn't figured it out, or maybe I had to go explore locations, and I didn't know what location to even start looking at. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think clarity and pointing you in the right direction and yes put a puzzle in front of me but make it a puzzle i can solve not one that i'm just kind of randomly blindly searching for something at well and what you said there about legacy does bring up a related topic i guess it's kind of more the choose your own adventure branching narrative idea but i think it can be really dangerous to kind of try to satisfy both lanes at once like have this open world you can go your own way mentality but also at the same time have like kind of a strict handholding. And, and that was definitely something that bothered me about season two quite a bit was that like, Oh, I, I don't know if you'll do this, but Hey, if you don't, we'll just do it for you anyway. Uh, that, that felt kind of a, like it uh, robbed some of the meaning and importance of the actions we were doing, even though there were, you know, there are penalties associated with uh, the different choices you might make in that. Now this, I, I think in uh, in like a dungeon crawl, this is going to be more like between mission stuff. Like, do you go to mission A or mission B? But I still think it uh, can be important when you're doing like a branching narrative and kind of having that exploration element and that discovery element that you do let it actually branch. You know, uh, my I've talked about this before, but I lost all faith in uh, Telltale games, even though I still enjoyed like The Wolf Among Us and the uh, Borderlands one. 
But I lost all faith in those games when I realized that they were railroading me to a specific ending in most cases. I just got to choose, like, the window dressing of the train while I rode it. (laughs) And I would, you know, if you're going to tell me that my decisions matter and I'm going to change the way the ending plays out, then make that true. And, like, Tainted Grail, I haven't reached the end yet, but I know that I'm making major decisions already in the side quests I'm completing and the ones I'm failing and the ones I'm choosing not to take up with a time element. And I imagine that, you know, even if I reach, like, kind of a yay, you win, you stop the badness uh, ending in the end, regardless, that things will be different in the world because of the choices I made. And I always appreciate that. Yeah, and it's interesting because in a lot of games, it's very clear. Like, hey, somebody's getting attacked by a bear. Should you stop it or not? Well, of course you're going to stop it. But in this game, it doesn't necessarily... There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer to some of these questions. There's a... Which path do you want to go down to answer? Do you want to be the big hero that saves everybody all along the way? Well, guess what? It's going to cost you time. It's going to get you hurt. It's going to cost you some things to do that. And if you choose the other side, it might be an easier path or or a different path. And so I think sometimes in some of these games, it's just there's obvious things to do. But again, I like what they did here in Tainted Grail, and I think they should do this in all of these games where it doesn't matter. It's just going to take you down a different path. So there is no right or wrong answer. It's what's right or wrong for you and your character and how you want to build that character. And I think that does go to the way that computer-based exploration games go, right? A lot of these newer games are you can go down the path of evil or the path of good, and they're going to lead you to different places even though the end goal of the story is still the same. You're still aiming in the same direction, but you're just taking different paths to get there. And I I do like how you can do that in games. And I think more board games should do it that way. Yeah. And speaking of like kind of paths and variety uh, for the designers out there, know that you can do very little and still get a lot of bang out of it. Uh, You can just have two different cards and you draw one of them randomly and it changes something and that's it. And you'll still make people feel like they can play that entire mission, that entire scenario a second time and get a new experience out of it. So as an example, for those Lord of the Rings card game fans out there, in the very first original scenario where you were fighting the uh, spiders in the forest, you would have uh, these two cards at the end and you would either have to find and kill Ungoliant Spawn, or you would have to escape really quickly. And it's a super minor difference, you know, like the game's going to play out, you might kill Ungoliant Spawn in either case, but the fact that they had those two different cards makes it feel like you have more to do, makes it feel like the game has more variety. And it can be as simple as that, like in spare parts, uh, some missions are very different in how they play out, but some are just a couple of cards different, but that's enough to give it replayability and let people feel like they're discovering and exploring something new each time they play. Yeah, so I know we've strayed off topic quite a few times here. We haven't really focused on exploring, but we've kind of done a broad overview, I think, of the exploration category and how it even influences other categories. So, Mike, do you have any other thoughts or any final thoughts for us? No, man. My throat's getting dead from talking so much, so uh, I think I think we said it all. Yeah, I mean, my final piece of advice is this is a very ambitious game, This isn't something I would undertake as my first design challenge. I would certainly try to do something smaller first. But, I mean, you look at the designers of these games and you could tell that they're passion projects. And I think they are first 
time designs for, for a lot of these people. So who knows? Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe you just need that passion and you need that not knowing or not caring what you're getting into when you first uh, when you first undertake it. So I, I don't know. I don't know. If this is your passion, I say go for it. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. Uh, check out Tainted Grail. Clearly a big recommend from both of us. And uh, let's keep seeing these games with exploration and discovery because it sounds like uh, now we uh, can both enjoy them. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. But before we do that, Mike, let's thank some of our loyal Patreons. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling you didn't have it, but I had to throw it to you. Yeah, he just... Hey, Mike. Yeah? I'm exploring new things. That sounds weird. Like exploration games. Ah.